So today's uh, sermon title is The Woman, the Dragon, and the Cosmic Showdown, because this is the point in Revelation where things take a turn. This is where we go from uh, introducing the seven churches to um, talking about a lot of the things that are going to happen and uh, in terms of like the trials and tribulations that people will face here. John pulls out to a much more cosmic scale in this vision to talk about this, this cosmic war between good and evil. And um, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> There's a lot going on. There's a lot. It is impossible, and I do not use this word lightly, it is impossible today to read these chapters especially with a surface reading and have any clue what the symbolism is about in here. Because this, these two chapters and, be, and beyond this are drenched in symbolism. They have specific meanings. It's pulling all over the place from Hebrew scriptures, uh, from prophetic writings and stuff. And um, so if you do a surface level reading of this, you are not going to be able to come away from it with the intent that John was writing. <laughs> You, we, we will come away with it with things like the Left Behind series, which is about as surface as you can get when it comes to reading this. Um, the main truth that you, we can pull out of these two chapters here, especially if we read deeply into it and understand what some of the characters represent, is that though the world is chaotic, though the world may be chaotic, every moment is under the watchful eye of a loving God who ensures that evil never has the final word. And that is the big, big point here that we can pull out of these two chapters. And so the question I pose to you to sort of ponder as we talk about all this today is what would change in your daily life if you truly believed that every moment, good or bad, is under the watchful care of a loving God? Now, some of us do believe that. Some of us do believe that, and, and our lives show that. Um, but just like I say, you know, we all, we all believe that God is in control and has a plan and that everything is preordained, yet we still look both ways when we cross the street, right? We say we believe a thing, but our lives don't live it out. So what would change for you if, if that was really internalized? So keep that in your mind as we continue. As I've said before, the context of all of this that we're reading today. And, you, and if you read these two chapters, they're fun. These are good ones. Um, some of the most popular things that we remember out of Revelation come from these chapters. Um, the early churches facing persecution and challenges were introduced to these visions of, of Revelation not to scare them. They are scary, but they were introduced to these not to scare them they were introduced to these to comfort and assure them, which is what I sort of I made that point last week that these were written for oppressed, persecuted people, and so only oppressed and persecuted people can truly, truly gain all of what is being brought to the table in Revelation, and for them, a lot of that is comfort and assurance. This portion of Revelation shifts to that cosmic battle that the cosmic nature of the battle between good and evil. And it does so with a ton of symbolism, as I've already said. Who is this woman? Who is the dragon? Who is the beast? And what does the number 666 really mean? Because it's in these chapters that we get that. And everybody in here has heard of that. But what does it mean? Because, spoiler alert, it doesn't mean 
what does any of this have to do with us today? There's a lot to unpack, but I'm going to try not to give you information overload today. Um, I'm going to try not to overwhelm you with information. Rather, I'm going to really quickly lay out the characters in this part of the story in order to get past them to get to the main point of Revelations 12 through 14, uh, three chapters, which is John uses this cosmic war drama to describe the good versus evil struggle that his seven churches were dealing with in order to give them both direction and assurance that the current hardships that they faced would not have the final word. He wrote this. He had these visions and shared them with these seven churches to let them know that even though it's bad right now, it's not going to be bad forever. It took him three chapters to get, <laughs> to get this out. And it's not really clear, but that's what it means. That's where it is when you really unpack it. So who are some of the main players and why is it important? Well, I've said before, most of us in here and online have heard of the Mark of the Beast, 666. These are here in these chapters. Uh, this portion of Revelation is where that comes from, but the beast that we, we, don't, we usually think, ah, oh, the Mark of the Beast. But there are actually two beasts in these chapters. There's the first beast that comes from the sea and the second beast that comes from the land. And they actually have two different purposes, but they play in tandem with one another. Um, they're important, but they are secondary to the main figures of this battle in this description, which are the woman and the dragon, which is why we're the woman, the dragon, in the cosmic showdown. The woman and the dragon are actually the main players here. Um, so who are all these characters, and why does it matter? So the woman has been um, interpreted in a couple of ways throughout history. It's been used to represent Israel as a whole, like the Hebrew people as a whole. Uh, it's been interpreted to be Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, it's been interpreted to be the church. But one of the first Christian commentators on the book of Revelation in the third century, uh, Bishop Victorinus of Patel, he compellingly argues that this woman represents all of the people of God before and since Jesus. So all of the people of God. And so that is kind of the take I take with it because... Um, it's the most inclusive view, and I always try to err toward the most inclusive view. Um, and, and I, but I also think it's, it's very helpful to think of it in terms of, of this. The dragon, the dragon's easier to identify because it's explicitly stated who the dragon is, what the dragon represents, and that's Satan. Satan, the adversary. Um, Revelation 12.9 says this, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So John at least gives us one, throws us a bone and said, all right, you don't have to interpret this one. I'm going to tell you what this one represents. The beast, as I said, the beast whose number is 666. Now, this is the beast of the sea. I could go on for the next few hours explaining the... Uh, the scholarship behind this for centuries and centuries and centuries. But I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to just, I'm just going to give you the, I'll give you the answer. So 666 is, represents the Emperor Nero from, um, who ruled, uh, who was the Emperor of Rome from 54 CE to 68 CE. Now, the Cliff's Notes, too long, didn't read it, explanation of this is that, um, in Hebrew, there's a 
there's a system, system of numbers called uh, gramatria. And in Hebrew, each, each um, letter also had a numerical value, kind of like Roman numerals, right? They, they would have a numerical value. And this was something that was well attested to and done throughout ancient, um, throughout ancient, the ancient cultures. And so sometimes when they would want to write something and not make it super obvious, they would write things in numbers and they represented a thing. Well, again, without going in through all the explanations, uh, the numbers 666 um, spell out uh, um, Nero Caesar is what it, what it spells out. And also there, and you may see if you look into this even a little bit, you might see that um, some versions of scripture, instead of saying 666, it says 611. But also, that also still spells out Nero. Uh, the, again, you can look it up. It's, it's, um, it is the, the most accepted scholarship, even among conservative Christians, that, that this is what this means. Um, so when we read this, I've said this for weeks. You know, these weren't predictions of the end times. They weren't things that we're supposed to, like, identify the beast in our world today. No, this was specific. This was specific to the time, right? Uh, so who is the beast of the earth then? This one's a little, actually, a little more, um, it's still pretty clear in the, in the writing and on the understanding, but it's not, it's not a person specifically. It's people, the systems. Uh, the second beast is often seen as representing religious groups or ideas that support and push the goals of powerful, non-religious rulers or systems symbolized by the first beast. The second beast represents the local governments, the uh, churches, the pagan temples, the different groups that did what they did to feed into people's emperor worship. So if the first beast represents the emperor, the um, second beast was all the systems that pointed to the emperor. And so when you read these chapters it, with that understanding, it a lot clicks into place. This is why, though, um, when you take the understanding of, of trying to identify current events, and, and every generation has done this since, where they've believed they were in the end times, their culture, their group, their people, their world was the one that identified with all these. Uh, that's why you'll see some, if you do any research on this, you'll inevitably come up to somebody saying that the Pope and the Catholic Church represent the two beasts, right? The first beast is, is the Pope, and the second beast is the systems that point to the Pope. That's not accurate, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the thinking there. So if you needed a, I only share that to give you a, a, a conceptualization so that you can understand what I'm saying. Uh, the first beast is the emperor. The second beast are the systems that point to. The first beast was Nero Caesar. Then the second beast represented people and systems that promoted and even demanded worship and adherence to the authority of Nero. Now, why does knowing any of this matter? Why does knowing any of that that I just shared with you matter? Well, the woman, the dragon, and the beasts are not just random characters, but they represent deeper spiritual truths and struggles. These characters, even though they refer to specific things, to specific people, they symbolize long-standing spiritual battles and truths. They remind us of stories in the Bible where God's people face dangers and tough times, but still keep their hope because they believed in God's promise of victory. Revelation isn't just about historical events 
It's a bigger story about how people connect with God and the challenges they face along the way. So why these characters represent who they do are important because it points us to bigger truths. And you really have to read these stories, these chapters, especially 12 and 13 in totality to get the point, the next point I'm about to make. But ultimately, when you have felt the protective presence of someone during a difficult time, it is a game changer. And when you read about the woman um, and the dragon and how they interact and what God is doing through all of that, the only thing you can come away with that has any hope to it is this idea that God is this protective presence during difficult times, that God is protecting the woman, God is protecting the child, which I will get to in a moment because I haven't talked about the child. But in the Bible, there's a reoccurring theme of God looking out for God's people, and that's what's happening here. In Revelation 12:6 and 12:14, God provides a safe place for the woman, away from the danger, showing how he steps in to protect those under threat. But this is all over the Bible, this idea that God protects God's people. In Psalm 91.4, this verse speaks about God sheltering us like a bird covers its young with its wings. In Isaiah 41.10, God promises to be with us, give us strength, and support us. In Matthew 10.29-31, Jesus tells us that even tiny birds are under God's care, so we, being so much more precious to him, are surely protected. And then John 3.16, today's bonus verse, For God so loved the world. This famous verse speaks of the ultimate act of love and protection. God becoming flesh and enduring all that humanity has to offer, including death, for our salvation. The point of all of this is to say that God protecting and caring for God's people is a reoccurring theme through the Bible, and it's here in these two, three chapters that we really, really see and feel this coming into fruition. If the woman represents all of God's people before and since Jesus, then just as she was shielded and protected, so are we under God's loving gaze, no matter how dire our circumstances. That's why I think it's really important to interpret the woman as all of God's people, because it shows the most amount of care and love. And if God is love, I think that's what God wants. And I say I think because I can't know for sure, but I think it's a really good place to be. I think it's a great place to be. Now, evil may seem strong at times. Let me phrase that. Let me say that again. Evil is strong at times. Evil is strong. But the Bible reminds us, especially here in these chapters, that evil's power is limited. If you read these chapters, you come away with this, that truth, that evil's power is limited. Revelation's limits on evil are shown much more near the end, but also here in chapter 13. And in chapter 20, Satan, the dragon, gets locked up for a thousand years before being annihilated. He can't deceive people during this period. But here in 13.5, the beast can only cause trouble for 42 months. I don't know that 42 months means anything specific. Uh, there's a wide range of scholarship that tries to make interpretations about what this means, but uh, the most reliable scholarship doesn't have, they're just like, we don't know what that means, if it means anything other than the takeaway that evil's reign is limited. Evil's influence is limited. There are limits to this. 
other places where the Bible talks about evil short time frame. Job, the book of Job, the adversary has given limits when testing Job. Psalm 37, wicked people won't last forever, they will fade away like grass. John 16, Jesus tells that he's bigger than any trouble in the world and he's overcome all of it. 1 John 4, God's power in us is greater than any evil out there. Romans 16, Paul says that God will soon defeat Satan. And again, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This shows that God's love is stronger than all evil. He sent Jesus to save us, proving that love and good will always win. Given enough time, love and good always win. So even when things are bad, remember, evil's days are numbered. When things are bad, just remember that evil's days are numbered, but God's love shown through Jesus lasts forever. The point is that the ceiling of evil ends where the floor of love begins. Even in the darkest moments, when evil seems to be at its peak, love is ready to emerge and overpower it. Love is foundational and unyielding, Whereas evil, no matter how dominant and overwhelming it may seem at the time, has boundaries. The beasts and the dragon, though powerful here, have limits. Evil's reign is temporary. Which brings me to my final point today. Evil never has the final word. Evil never has the final word. Revelation 12 and 13 paint a dramatic picture of the battle between good and evil. We see the dragon representing Satan and evil attempting to harm the woman's child, often interpreted as Jesus, and later all believers. But it never fully succeeds. Despite the chaos, a few things are evident. I've talked about the ideas that God protects and that the reign of evil is temporary, but Revelation 12.11 also tells us that believers overcome. Believers overcome says here they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony using their faith and the sacrifice of jesus the lamb here in revelation believers can resist and triumph over evil now linking this with john three sixteen, our bonus scripture today it is evident that god's immense love shown by sending jesus is our ultimate defense against the overpowering shadows of evil While the world faces challenges and dark moments, God's love remains our constant hope, promising not just survival, but eternal life for those who believe that love overcomes evil. When you believe that Jesus is your Savior, when we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, what we are really saying is that we believe that love overcomes evil. Eternal life is for those who believe that love overcomes evil, y'all. So even in the middle of the dramatic cosmic battles of revelation the underlying message is hopeful evil might seem strong for a while but god's love and power always have the final say always have the final say and for us that final say is represented in the story by the one character that i didn't describe and that is the child the child the child represents christ destined to rule all nations and who was then taken up to god a reference here in Revelation that many scholars associate with Christ's ascension post-resurrection. But the symbolism of a child isn't just unique here to Revelation. Throughout the scriptures, children frequently emerge as representations of hope, of purity, of promise, and God's unwavering commitment to the future. 
in Mark 10, people are bringing little children to Jesus to place his hands on them. The disciples rebuke them, but Jesus was indignant and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This moment isn't just a sweet interaction. It underscores a profound spiritual truth. The kingdom of God is filled with the qualities that children embody. Innocence, trust, purity. And that is why I had to stress up today. Because it's, I've said the words childlike, not childish, childlike. I wanted us to embrace our childlikeness in this moment. And there's no better way to do that than to pretend and play and have fun. But the kingdom of God is filled with these qualities. Innocence, trust, purity. Now if we view the woman as representing all of God's faithful people over time, her giving birth to the child takes on even deeper significance. This birth becomes the culmination of God's promise to his people, a promise threaded throughout the Old and New Testaments. The child becomes the embodiment of every hope and promise given to Israel. The birth of the child is a testament to the church's role in bringing the message of salvation through Christ to the world. The woman bringing forth the child, God's people, put another way, God's people bringing forth the ultimate symbol of hope and redemption. This encapsulates the entire biblical narrative of God's unwavering promise to redeem creation. In essence, the story in Revelation 12 and 13 is a microcosm of the grand narrative of Scripture, which is God's people facing challenges and adversity, yet holding on to the promises of God, ultimately bringing forth the Savior of the world. The Savior, Christ, stands as 